Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's www.corvettetodaypodcast.com. Sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. Don't forget, there's a Corvette Today Facebook group. Make sure you join. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City. Hendrick is the largest seller of Corvettes in the Kansas City area, and they ship nationwide. Visit ChevyUSA.com or call 913-384-1550. 913-384-1550. Also, MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. If you'd like to join a new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly Corvette community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. My guest on Corvette today is Corvette race car historian Jan Hyde. Jan is the co-founder of the Registry of Corvette Race Cars. The Registry of Corvette Race Cars is a very cool way for Corvette fans to connect with their heroes and the cars that they raced. It features a catalog of about 1,500 Corvettes that raced every year starting in 1956 through the present. And it's designed to enhance the National Corvette Museum archives. Jan, welcome to Corvette Today. Hi, Steve. Thanks. It's a great pleasure, and especially to be on your podcast with so many really great and interesting people. Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, you deserve the credit. Indeed. You know, the Corvette, when it was first seen in January, that was 1953, at the Gia Motorama in New York City. It was held at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The thing absolutely stole the show. It was very futuristic looking. It was a two-seater that I don't think uh, any American company had produced. You might catch me on that. Maybe the Kaiser Darren. I'm not sure. But Harley Earl was the genius stylist of General Motors and a really powerful guy. And he thought, wow, this will be America's answer to the British sports cars like MGs and Triumphs that a lot of uh, GIs and folks were bringing back. And these were kind of fun cars to drive. And in addition, this new sports car would serve as a halo, kind of a thing that would elevate people's perception for the entire line of GM cars. So it seemed like a pretty slam dunk thing at the time. But instead, (laughs) it was a colossal flop. (laughs) I'm not sure if they figured this would happen. They weren't selling these cars at all. And so it turned out that racing the Corvette in competition would be the thing that saved it. 
Steve, we'll get back to that soon. Okay. But I'd like to now talk a little bit about the where's and why's of this project. The main reason behind it is a way for fans to connect with their heroes through the Corvettes that they actually raced through the years. I mean, we're talking about 1956 through today. That's a lot of cars and a lot of time. We've also worked very hard at cultivating relationships with photographers and finding people who were at the scene who weren't even photographers, but hey, they started to take pictures. So we made a great effort to go after those. And obviously, thanks to the advances, is a lot better today than it was when we started. You can get so many pictures if they're scanned, they're on the internet, or sometimes they'll take pictures for you or go through their collections. But we have a Corvette photo collection that I, I, I just can't describe it. And it's turned out to be a big help because the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. Right. So we've been able to tag, you know, kind of figure out what they were, about 1,500 Corvette race cars so far. That's amazing, Jan. Well, you know, if you took something like a Porsche, there would probably be a lot more because that's a pure racing brand. But uh, it is a lot. It's more than you can keep track of on a piece of paper, that's for sure. <laughs> so <laughs> we were able to come up with a unique system to keep track of them. And this may not be of great interest, just like when someone gets in their car, turns the key and starts and say, whoop, turn the key, starts it up. Good, I'm off to go. But behind the scenes, our system to get people started is something we call the Corvette Race Car Series Chronology. And it's really worked that well. We can identify every Corvette race car very simply as follows, if you'll just hear me go through the first step. Okay. First thing is, what do we look for? The number on the door. Now, that's pretty obvious, but, you know, there's a bunch of cars going by, and, you know, there's number 17, and there's number 11. Okay, get that thing nailed down in your definition. The next thing is, hey, when did this happen? And so you see this car going by, oh, my gosh, that was 1972 at uh, Laguna Seca, or that was somewhere here. Find out the year or years that it raced. And sometimes you get sidetracked because you say, oh, that's a 1968 Corvette. But it's really 1972. You see this picture. So you tag it. Let it be where you saw it, and you'll come back later and then nail down the nitty-gritty. The next thing is, and this may not be obvious to folks, is the series that it raced. And this is something that always intrigued me because when I grew up, if you owned a Corvette and you wanted to race it, the only place you could really race it was in the sports car Club of America. And they were a completely amateur club racing group, but they had classes for different displacement cars. So there are a lot of these cars that showed up in the SCCA club racing. But as things moved along, of course, there were the folks who were racing at Le Mans and, and, and Sebring. So that's called the FIA, and you can call that pros, and there are a few of them that raced back then. But then we went on to something called the Trans Am Series. Everybody's heard about the Trans Am Series. And in fact, after 1972, when the pony cars disappeared, the Trans Am Series opened up. 
So there are a lot of folks who were racing in club, and they could now race in Trans Am and say, I'm going to show up and, oh, wow, I'm going to maybe win a couple hundred dollars. But Trans Am became a very popular series. On the heels of Trans Am, you might recall John Bishop broke away from the SCCA, and he started a pro series that was helped out by Bill France, and that was called IMSA, International Motorsport Association. And so that series had a tremendous run. So anyway, these are the way we categorize these cars by series. And then finally, we peg who was the driver, and then if we look real carefully, uh, maybe we can, maybe we can't, but we have a pretty good eye. Where's the racetrack? So this is really, uh, (laughs) I don't mean to sound too partial, but this system has helped us so much. This has worked out pretty good for us. In some cases, you have the C3 Corvettes, the Shark generation, you know about those, from 1968 that ran all the way to 1983. That's 15 years. And some of these cars, as regulations changed, they started off as a roadster with a single roll bar. And by the time they got done, you wouldn't believe it. They looked like a fast back coupe. You know what those things look like also. And you say, hey, yes, this was the same car. So that's kind of helped us out. We're kind of compulsive about this. And one of the then neat things is being involved with this project has been a great inroad to talk Corvettes, learn a lot from drivers that you can hook up with and meet and have some fun, go visit them at the races, go to Corvette shows. Sometimes it's nice. You may even get an invitation to visit their shop. So I hope I'm coming from different angles here, getting an idea of what we're all about. It sounds great. And you keep all this online and everything is registered and everything is all set up, right? 100%. Going back when we started, are you guys familiar with the Cobra folks, the Shelby American and what they've done? But just real briefly, they were on doing books and publications. And I think the last book they published, you paid $400 for it was two phone books thick. And it was all the Cobras and and those cars. And I said, that's pretty tough for us to do. And the other thing is these Corvettes keep coming, whereas the Cobras are open and shut. So that was the quick answer that uh, we had to do this online. That's a smart idea. (laughs) Yeah, We're not that stupid. (laughs) Anyhow, (laughs) we also learned in the years that passed, and I'm sure just look at your beautiful website and people can find you. We set up a website. We do emailings. We have a very focused Facebook group business page. I cover a lot of race reports and do blogs. And we have obviously a great desire. We have a little membership program that people can pay because we beg for money. But you become a member, and we'll do cartwheels for you. We'll do whatever you want. We'll help you research your car. We'll show up. We're not going to help you drive it because we'll probably crash it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you search simply three words, Corvette Race Cars, our website will show up at the top. Jan, what is your website URL then? It's www registryofcorvetteracecars.com. And again, if you Google Corvette race cars, that'll show up because that's kind of a long handle to remember, but that's the URL. Gotcha. You said you recently converted the catalog to museum standards with their software. Talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. This has really been a wake-up call and and a good one. We created this catalog and it's got some 1,500 cars and we keep adding to it. And it was a database built back in 2007. 
And there comes a time, I guess, like if you're a computer person and you're still working on DOS, they're going to say, hey, buddy, you know, right. it's time to stop that. And then that was coming along with us. The group we used to host that had made significant upgrades, and they said, hey, you need to upgrade to this. And we talked to our designer, and he said, you know, this is going to take major surgery and cost some money. So I started looking around, just had a nice conversation with Derek Moore. I have to say Derek was the one who was most helpful, and he said, you know, you might look into a system. It's called Museum Software. It's known as Past Perfect, but that's what we use at the Corvette Museum. So I felt, wow, when we're gone, what's going to happen with this stuff anyway? The museum is obviously the best place. And we weren't so naive to think that, okay, they'll want it. We're working very hard to make it something that they will want, and that's going to boil down to money, which is a good thing. <laughs> we had this database converted to museum software. And we don't have public access for that yet, Steve, so it's not something people can get on. But the folks are working on it. I don't have an exact date yet, but I am obviously one of the people on that. Our colleagues, our collaborators are, and Derek can access that too. So that's been kind of a nice thing. It covers the cars with a history. But what's kind of really neat I've been involved actively and still follow vintage racing very, very closely. It's almost second nature to me. So it's been clear in the last several years that you go to a vintage race and you see a new car there. And there you talk to someone and, well, he's not happy to say that maybe it wasn't raced way back in the year by uh, Bergen or somebody like that. But he can say, yeah, you know, this was a neat car. We built it up. And usually you take a wreck or something like that. Okay, that's not a bad thing. I don't want these people to feel hostile. It's really a good thing. And so we're going to try to expand our database to include these cars. This was an anathema when we first started. Oh, no, we can't have those. They don't know a pure racing history. But as we all know, things change. And they're really neat cars. People love them. And they're high performance in particular. So we think that is a good thing to do. And I mentioned a little bit, supposing you might want to build one yourself, but like with other marks, if you're going to hop up a Porsche or something, you know, you're going to call up Bruce Canaper or something like that. There are some pretty good people who run full service restoration shops or do tuning. And I just want to mention a few of them that come to mind. They're not paying me to say this, but they do a great job. One of them is a company called Duntov Motor Cars. Duntov, of course, was the Grand Sport and the father of the Corvette, and a fellow named Alan Savagin, who had been involved with those cars when he was young, was able to license the name and got the okay from General Motors. So he has a company called Duntov Motor Cars, and he builds some tremendous Corvettes. Another person is out of Canada, and he's been on TV and has been a celebrity and an extremely talented racer and car builder. And his name is Peter Clute. And he has a company called Legendary Motor Cars. And they have built some tremendous race cars. All you need to do is open your wallet, Steve, and you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing his show on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he never ceases to amaze me. And he has two sons who are equally talented. Another one is you may have heard everybody, uh, Ray Evernham, who was Jeff Gordon's crew chief. And Ray then had a NASCAR team. He is really a talented guy and knows how to build cars and has started a shop called Big Iron. I think he's located in Charlotte. And a number of Corvette friends and people I know have sent their race cars to Ray to either be improved or maintained, and they'll also build new cars. So those are three. And then finally, I'm sure Corvette racing fans, or maybe just any fan, would know about the Pratt and Miller racing team. I think their most visible crew chief was a fellow named Dan Binks. If you saw his photo, you recognize him immediately. And Dan has a wealth of history, and he can build cars and knows everything. And he recently left because, you know, it was time for him to do some other things. And if he would set up a shop, I would put him in this league. Those are kind of some interesting things. And I think I'll leave it at this. We've always kind of been aware but never thought too much about drag racing. But drag racing was really, and still is popular, but especially back with the straight axle, the Stingray, and the Shark Corvettes, I think drag racing before 1981 or 1982, it was a big deal. But almost anybody could do it. You could race in these stock classes, or you could go into these up-the-ladder classes. And we're trying to get our arms around that. There's a number of people who are helping us. The photos have been a huge advantage because, along with the ability to collect photos of the road racing Corvettes, we have a big gallery of these drag racing cars. So we're going to be working to add that to our repertoire, if you will, hopefully, you know, make this project bigger and better and get it shaped up also in a way that maybe, maybe, maybe it'll make some money. Very nice, Jan. We're going to take a quick break, but in segment number two, we're going to talk more about Corvette racing and how it began. You're listening to Corvette Today. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want too. But what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My guest today is Corvette race car historian Jan Hyde from the Registry of Corvette Race Cars. In the second segment here, we're going to talk a little bit more about Corvette racing. Jan, I know that Zora Arcus Duntoff really was the impetus for Corvette racing. Talk a little bit more about that and how we got to be where we are today. Oh, thanks, Steve. As an historian, 
I can't get enough of this story, but I'm going to try to be truthful. A lot of people maybe today could paper over some of this stuff, but from everything we've gathered and much has been written about Zora Arkas Duntov, he was a Russian-born engineer and uh, happened to attend the Motorama we talked about earlier. And he was so impressed with it, he applied and got a job with General Motors. And this was back in January 1953. It happened to be that they knew a heck of a lot about racing sports cars because that was pretty popular in Europe and he was involved. And so it turned out to be a great thing that Zora got a job. But, you know, you got to be honest. I hope I'm not hurting anybody's feelings, but this is the Eisenhower years. These people wore suits to work, white shirts, ties. And, you know, this guy Dunstop's coming in here. You know, he's not exactly the corporate fit. I'll tell you, things worked out pretty darn well. In any event, by its third year, it was pretty clear the Corvette was going to go down the tubes. Nobody was buying these things. So he wrote a letter to uh, Ed Cole. Ed Cole was the, I believe, the general manager of the Chevrolet division. And I think in your earlier podcast, Derek Moore mentioned that the museum has a copy of that letter, which right. is really cool. Yes. <laughs> but in any event, the gist of it was Zora Duntov said, you know, you need to compete in some racing if you expect to start selling these cars. Maybe it was be careful what you wish for. But it was nice that the 1956 model was restyled. It was a big improvement. He got roll-up windows, and the car looked a lot better. But in any event, this set off a scramble, literally. we got to get some cars ready to race because we're going to do it at Sebring. 12 hours of Sebring is coming up in March. They actually scrounged parts and I think they took actual 1955 Corvettes, which were the earlier generation. But at the end of the day, they were 1956 Corvettes and entered four of them in the Sebring 12-hour race. Now, it's really funny. I have to go off. A lot of people perhaps don't like to go there. But Smokey Eunuch, not sure how many folks are familiar, but Smokey Eunuch, quote, best damn garage in town from Daytona. He was the really big shot car tuner and had a big following. And it was obvious that the folks at Corvette, Chevrolet, they're looking around, this car's kind of a slug. So they asked Smokey Unit to take a look at it. And I'm only telling you, quoting from his books, there's a three volume that's worth every penny. I think some of his remarks was, well, the damn thing's overweight. they got to pull some weight out of this thing. The brakes don't worth work a crap. You know, they need some get disc brakes. And the thing handles like a manure spreader. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> then he closed off and he says, I can tell you one thing. He says, it's not a good idea to insult these people if you expect to get some business out of them. But, again, that was typical of the times. You know, these people knew they had to do something to improve this car. And it was really a good thing that they were able to actually get these cars into the race. Now, another aside that some folks don't like to discuss today, but that's up to them, Duntov, obviously, was the person, uh, Ed Cole said, okay, uh, get these cars ready. And Duntov looked at him, he says, what are you, crazy? He said, we don't have enough time, I can't do this, we're going to embarrass ourselves. Ed Cole was not one to suffer any nonsense, he's going to do it. So he turned to John Fitch. 
John Fitch, you may or may not have heard of, was the American sports car racer at the time. In 1955, he was the only American to be invited by the Mercedes team to be part of their team that raced at Le Mans. And they had Sterling Moss, and they had Juan Manuel Fangio. Anyway, John Fitch was a pretty big deal. And John Fitch was a pretty amazing guy. He had an engineering degree. He was a fighter pilot in World War II. He had all these things going for them. And so Fitch was able to get the job done. And General Motors was still a little bit nervous. And if you look at the records, the entry for those cars is, I think, called Racing Enterprises. And it's registered to a Corvette dealer in Illinois. His name is Dick Doan Chevrolet. And Dick Doan was one of the favorite dealers. So they were kind of doing something on one hand, hoping to succeed. And the other, they were hoping they wouldn't be embarrassed. But they were really, really lucky, as Fitch says, it was more than we expected and more than we deserved, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that even though only one of these four Corvettes was still running at the end, merely by finishing, they won their class for production cars. And it so happened that John Fitch and his co-driver, Walt Hansken, were driving that car. I think you can find them on the internet, but Chevrolet always had a good advertising program. So they ran ads that they ballyhooed the Corvette now as, quote, the real McCoy. And this is a pretty exciting time in Corvette racing history. So what followed next is the stylists and engineers, they were pretty encouraged, and they went to work on a very revolutionary Corvette called the SS, that's short for Super Sport. And they built that thing to race in the overall prototype class, win the whole thing overall, versus having cars to race in the production class. They did enter some Corvettes in the production class in 1957, but all the hype was focused on this Corvette SS, and its opponents were Ferrari and Maserati. I'm going to stop short now because that could be the subject for another podcast. But shortly thereafter, after Sebring, 1957, GM stopped supporting sports car racing. That was it. They were done. I'll give one clue, but there are other things that happened because of that. At the time, General Motors was the largest private company in the United States. And their big worry, and they were right, is that if we attract more attention to what we're doing in racing, we're going to get on the radar screen of the feds, and they're going to come after us and try to break us up. So I think they had their heads on straight. But it was a really, really big bummer to anybody who was following Corvette race cars and racing and what was going on. I want to now try to put myself back. I was just in my late teens at the time. It turns out the basic 283 Fuley Corvette, which anybody could buy, and you could order heavy-duty brakes, and they had a suspension option and some other parts. These are legal parts, and you could buy them from GM. So that was a really, really potent weapon for club racers who were racing in the SCCA. And their opposition at the time were mainly from Jags and Mercedes that cost double the amount. So you had to be crazy. Wow, I can go off and buy myself a Corvette, equip this thing, and go out and, and start winning some races. 
and some of the best drivers were my heroes, Don Yanko and Dr. Dick Thompson. And they happened to go race for a team that was started by Grady Davis, who was a senior executive at the Gulf Oil Company. And they were based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which happened to be where I grew up. So, wow, I couldn't get enough of this. So that was kind of a lift. And I was following some of these folks who were racing uh, across the country. I have to move to another thing that was important to me. It was April of 1970. And... I could not imagine, but I was able to buy a Corvette that actually raced against these guys, Don Yanko and Dick Thompson. I mean, wow. I said, you know what? What could be better than this? It was a red 1962 SCCA B production that happened to win a national championship and was offered to me by a fellow named Frank Dominiani who was a pioneer Corvette racer, had absolutely no money behind him, but very talented guy, and we became lifelong friends. But in any event, Frank had retired this car four years earlier. This is 1970, and he stopped racing it in 1966, and it was sitting in the yard behind his shop. It was sitting under a tarp. He had a shop called High Speed Power Equipment, Valley Stream, New York, and Frank was the guy. I mean, if you wanted to get engines built or you had a Corvette you wanted to race or just come in there and get your Corvette serviced, he was the guy to see. So Frank just didn't have any use for it, and he thought I was kind of an enthusiast. He said, you know, I could make that car available to you. And I said, wow, I'll never forget the day I got it. It turned out to influence my life in a huge way for the 32 years, not only that I owned it, but after that. I like to get into some of those memories, uh, if I could quickly. Sure. Frank had asked me, he said, okay, bring me 15 $100 bills, cash. And (laughs) I handed it to him, and I kind of looked, and I thought, what do I get? He said, oh, here. And he reached over, and he got a little notebook, and he wrote out a bill of sale on a piece of paper, and he ripped it off and handed it to me. Wow. (laughs) I had no garage. I had no place to put it. I'm living in New York City, and our first kid was on the way. So I guess when you get older, you get more sensible. But I didn't break any laws. I didn't hurt anybody. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But that really was a big deal for me. I wound up, ran it in time trials and some hill climbs. That led me to sign up for the Jim Russell Racing School, which was held at that time at an incredible track at Saint-Jevite in Canada, northwest of Montreal. They had a great instructor, his name was Jacques Coutre, a number of uh, people. And I said, hey, you got this car, you might as well learn to drive it. I was 34 years old at the time, but I went up there, and once I started training in these cars, they're little Formula Fords. You may be familiar with they weigh about 1,500 pounds. They're open wheel. They tell you everything you do. You do something good. You do something bad. You know, you're carrying speed. You're losing speed. I said, wow, what am I doing with this old slug? It got me thinking about getting rid of it because if I want to do some racing, I need to have a proper car. That never really took place because some things went on. My old number 69, I remember I had it and the shop was worked on. And it was a year later and through Frank, he knew a kid who bought a Stingray that had been raced. 
and he thought I would be a good mentor. That's a big laugh. So I talked this kid into saying, hey, yeah, that's great, but there's a couple of things coming up. There's a time trial at Bridgehampton, did that. And the following weekend, there was a hill climb in Reading, Pennsylvania called Durier. It's a monster. There's nothing like it. And this was the 1975 25th anniversary. If you would look at the car after I got finished with it and you'd look at that wreck, you'd say, my God, this guy should not be talking to me today. He should be dead. It's one of those things I won't go into now, but the main point is that put an end to any notions I had of getting in a race car in anger. Hey, I'm happy to drive one around, but wow, once you crash a car, your whole life goes before you real slow, and then everything blacks out, and then when you wake up, you say, what the heck, and it's really hard. I know of some people, I guess, who've had big crashes. I think Tommy Kendall was on one once, and he recovered, but it really affects you mentally, and if you can't do that, you shouldn't do it, so don't kid yourself. I asked my friend, a fellow named Richard Engelhard, low-key, low-profile, turned-out NCRS top-flight quality cars. I said, hey, I got this race car, fill one piece, I'm happy to have it, let's put it on the street. And he did a fantastic job. We put a windshield on it. I got a hard top. He straightened out all the crappy fiberglass and still had the side pipes and everything else. You could do that in New York. Got it registered. And for a while, you probably have seen people driving down the street like this, and you probably got them in your Corvette club. But, you know, you got a rumbler like this, and you're going through the neighborhood. Boom, 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 you know? <laughs> it's kind of an ego trip. But like everything, things change. My getting hooked on racing was too much to resist. So we learned that in 1987, the Monterey Historic Races now it's called the Rolex Monterey Race Car Reunion. It was run by Steve Earle, who invented vintage racing, and he's at the top of his game. And if you had a chance to race at Monterey with Steve Earle, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'd give my right arm to do that. We checked, and, you know, here's a car that had a real racing history. And I contacted them, and they said, yeah, you're going to get an invitation. So we turned this car back into a race car. We went out there, and we had a wonderful time. And as things worked out, we would end up doing a lot of vintage racing with this car. And what was really cool is, you know, I wasn't going to be driving it. And Rich had both put it back on the street and turned it into a race car. And while I wouldn't call him a full-fledged, he wasn't a smoky eunuch racing mechanic, but Rich is a very, very competent, smart guy. And he's the first kind of person to know that if you're going to get into one of these cars, make sure you got brakes that work, you know? <laughs> so make sure it's going to handle. So we kind of had a nice relationship with myself. I was the owner. And Rich, uh, I would call him the chief mechanic. And I met through Rich a fellow who we're all still lifelong friends. His name is Ken Manella, who was really interested in getting into driving. And here I was with this car offering him a ride. This turned into really what I kind of call a, quote, community car, unquote, as opposed to say, hey, who owns, I own this car. No, 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 we own this car. And so we were able to take that car to some great places. One of them that stands out was mid-Ohio in 1993, Corvette was celebrating its 40th anniversary, and we got invited out to that, and we got some fun and exposure. Sure, you have your ups and downs. You're going to break things. 
You race these old cars, Steve, and I'll talk about the straight axles anyway. You had tires with more grip. What you didn't know is little tricks like back in the day, it didn't matter, but we broke our share of rear axles. The trick was you could get special axles that are made by a company called Mosier with actually flange where the backing plate gets welded in. So you learn about these things. Another incident that really kind of cracked us up at the time, I think it was around 1997 or 98, we were up at Watkins Glen for a vintage race. Ken and I had old number 69 in the paddock there. We're walking around. And I looked over and I said, geez, uh, that looks like Janet Guthrie. Does anybody know who Janet Guthrie is? Just a quick one. Janet Guthrie was the first woman to race at Indy. And Janet Guthrie was also a engineer, a physicist, and she raced a Jag. It was out in Grumman on Long Island, and she happened to get acquainted with Frank Dominiani. And Frank was the only one, I think, at the time. He had an engine dyno and a chassis dyno. So he built engines for her, and they became pretty friendly. And I think in 1964-65, they actually shared a ride at Watkins Glen in his old Corvette. So I walk over to Janet, and I introduce myself, and I say, Janet, do you recognize that car? And she looks at it, she's, is that the car that Frank used to race? And I said, yeah. I said, I talked to my friend Ken. There's an endurance race. I was wondering, you'd be our guest. Would you like to share a ride and drive it? And she looked at me up and down. And she says, are you crazy? She says, I wouldn't get in that bucket of bolts if you paid me. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that was rather fun. But anyway, this car has given me a lot of pleasure. In 2002, the Monterey Historics came around again to celebrate the Corvette mark. Again, Steve Earle still had that before they kicked him out. He was making too much money. They got upset. So Kevin McKay, who I think we're all familiar with, was a great restorer and has done a lot of work with Mike Yeager, and I got to know Mike. We thought, hey, you know, maybe this is a good time to pass it along. Kevin said, yeah, I'm going to talk to Mike. I can authenticate this is an original car, and I think it'll be great for his collection. And, you know, maybe I can restore it and put it back. So I said, yeah, Kevin, go ahead, work it out. And we came to a deal. And the only glitch was I said to Mike, it's definitely, I, I want to sell you the car, but I want to make it clear, we're going to race in the races. If something could happen and it breaks or if it destroys, you're not going to buy it. But if we make a transmission, I'm going to fix it. So in any event, Mike was okay with that. And it was a good thing. It was kind of sad. Mike picked it up, put it on his trailer. And this car had a wonderful life for many years and Mike's wonderful collection in Effingham and Illinois. So I was pretty happy with that. That's great. Hey, you're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. In segment number three, we're going to talk about the project for the registry of Corvette race cars. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Fact. According to the March of Dimes, 40,000 babies are born each year in the United States with heart defects. At Athletic Testing Solutions, we take that, well, to heart. 
ATS offers the ATS Heart Check, a series of non-invasive tests to identify possible hidden heart defects in your kid's heart. Frequently, the symptoms of sudden cardiac arrest are masked or misdiagnosed. The ATS Heart Check can help detect congenital heart problems or abnormalities that don't show up during regular checkups or a sports physical. The ATS Heart Check is a terrific option, and it gives you peace of mind that your child is heart safe. Sudden cardiac arrest claims on average 130 young lives every week. Don't let your kids be a statistic. The ATS Heart Check takes only 20 to 30 minutes and it utilizes an EKG, an echocardiogram ultrasound of the heart. Visit ATSHeartCheck.com. Schedule your child today. Call toll-free 888-537-2597. That's 888-537-2597. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My guest today is Corvette race car historian Jan Hyde. Jan has a registry of Corvette race cars online. But coming up in this third segment, we want to get into how the project really happened. Jan, the floor is yours. Okay, that's great, Steve. I had gained a pretty good sense of things, awareness, and you can tell I like to talk, you like to talk. I've made contacts, I learn how people operate, what makes them tick. During a 40-year career I had in the real estate investment banking business, my job was to raise money, advise on developers and buying and selling and leasing commercial properties. That took me across the country. Oftentimes, I would have to travel. That was kind of fun. I enjoyed it. What I found was, at the time, that came in really handy, keeping track of Corvettes and drivers that are racing in various places. I can't say I could actually get to all those races, but I became pretty personally invested and connected, and I was always rooting for these Corvette guys wherever they raced. I guess, again, the Corvette not being a pure racing mark and not having any factory support it was often in vain. You're trying and trying and trying. Hey, beat those Porsches and BMWs. But those guys were getting factory support. They had all kinds of ways to win. But, you know, some of the Corvettes that were racing back then were really neat. So no matter what, I became pretty consumed. And having this experience with owning a race car and going through all that stuff and fixing them and getting together and doing this, I think I developed a pretty good sense of what goes into them. And also, I was invested firsthand. I mean, you really feel great if you win or you do well. And then on the other hand, when you fail, you say, oh, God, I wish that didn't happen. But that's one of the things of racing. That's how it kind of works. No matter, I was consumed. And I was lucky to have a Corvette race car that delivered in spades. There's an old saying, there's nothing more useless than last year's race car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today we go crazy trying to collect them or build them, but clearly that's the way it was, and in some cases still is. But in any event, one of the straight axles that stands out is the 1960 Corvettes that Briggs Cunningham took to Le Mans. Uh, He took three of them, and I think that was another subject of a podcast with Michael Brown. Correct who did a movie called The Quest Documentary. But I found that this is a pretty neat way to get around and meet these racers. 
it took me some time in the case of that particular car, but I was very fortunate to be invited as, uh, along with the party that the late Chip Miller's son, Lance, organized, and with Kevin McKay, who restored the car, to take that car back to Le Mans in 2010, it was, to celebrate his 50th anniversary. John Fitch, who was 93 years old at the time, was on board, and I thought, wow, he doesn't know me from Adam, but I was so fortunate, you know, I was polite and listened, but you couldn't help, but there were instances if you were waiting in a hotel lobby or sitting around or somebody was going to show up, I got a chance, it was just priceless to talk with John and learn how that Corvette SS was invented, for example. The way it happened is they bought a Mercedes 300 SL, had a space frame, and they tore it apart and re-engineered it. And if you look carefully at the Corvette SS, that's kind of what it was. But they're not going to admit that, and I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade. But it's just a neat thing learning from stories like that. Another driver I got to meet a little bit afterwards was Dick Thompson. I think folks have talked about him. I wish I could have met Don Yanko and Delmo Johnson. They're no longer alive. But Dick, in his later years... He was just, again, such a delightful, graceful person, and he had a lovely wife, and Dick would often come to the races, the 12 hours at Sebring, and the thing that stands out on my mind, not only was Dick Thompson racing the straight axles with the Grady Davis team, but when they came out with the Z06, does anybody really understand, because of all the Z06 modern Corvettes today, the Z06 was the first split window, Stingray, and that was supposed to be the world beater. And Dick Thompson raced those cars. That didn't work out that way, but that number one Z06, which is now owned by a collector friend of mine, is worth a lot of money, and the guy is a fun guy, and he's not afraid to take it out on the track. So that was kind of a treat to me. Another one was the Owens Corning racing team, which was Tony DiLorenzo and Jerry Thompson, both great guys and who are very much alive. And I've gotten a chance to visit with them one-on-one. And, and again, here are some wonderful stories, both pluses and minuses. But one of the things that Jerry made clear is, again, as I said about General Motors and money and racing, here are these guys wanted to go racing. They weren't getting any formal support, but he was an engineer at the time, and he said, you know, I would sit through lectures and meetings, and people would shout at us, we don't make cars, we make money. And I'm sitting and listening to this, I said, but look, you know, that's the way it is. And the John Greenwood saga, unfortunately, John is no longer alive, but his brother, Bert, is alive, and they have a number of followers. I got to host a Greenwood reunion at Daytona in 2015, and the folks who turned up for that and the stories, it's a fact. None of them are true. You can't believe any of them. But we shouldn't hold that against them, the fact that they (laughs) invent things. I mean, really, when you look out today at the news and what you read with politics and economics and everything else, the nice thing about that is learn, take in from it, enjoy it. At the end of the day, make up your own mind. But to me, there's a lot to be learned and a lot of fun. With the C4 Corvettes, when those came out, of course, they were completely different. The older purists didn't like them. But the ones that really blew me away 
were called the GT1, and they were eligible to race in the Trans Am, and they were built on tube frames. All they resembled to a Corvette was a silhouette body, but it was really sleek and aerodynamic. And one of the really, really famous racers, David Hobbs, I'm not sure if anybody's heard of him, but David Hobbs had a racing career that is right up at the top. He's driven for everyone. And David Hobbs was one of the drivers for a team in 1984 out of Portland, Diatli. And those cars have been restored and one sitting in the museum. So getting a chance to meet with David Hobbs, can't put a number on it, priceless. And then the folks at Pratt & Miller have been terrific. We go to the races at Sebring, and they were really, really approachable. Don't get them when they're busy, but you could walk up and have a conversation with drivers like Ron Fellows and Johnny O'Connell and Dan Binks, who we spoke of earlier. Again, these are things that this project was a helpful thing to improve my life anyway. And I'll cap it off with a little bit of a sour grape story, but I have to do this. You're not going to read this one in Corvette Racing History. <laughs> There's a fellow named Lou Gelati who came out of upstate New York and wound up moving to Texas. But Lou Gelati built probably more Corvette race cars than anybody I can think of. He built Corvette C4s. He built C5s, C6s. They raced in the World Challenge Series. They raced in the Trans Am. And he also built some to race in the American Le Mans Series, which is where the Corvette racing team boys were racing. And uh, Lou is a very, very headstrong, competitive, independent. You don't want to mess with him. He's a nice guy, though, but he's really earned his spurs, if you will. So he was careful. He said, I'm going to build a Corvette to race in this ALMS series, but I'm going to race in the GT2, which is one step below. Mind you, he's not racing head-to-head -head against the Corvette racing team. And so and his cars were always this black with yellow flames. You can spot them a mile away. So as it turned out, Lou tries to get Michelin tires for this car, and they won't sell them to him. And he's looking around, looking around. Finally, he learns that Michelin will not sell him tires. He had a race on Dunlops, which were not up to the job. And the reason he couldn't race on Michelin's was that the Corvette boys had enough clout, and they said, we don't want you selling any tires to Lou Gelati. Hmm. So Lou ended up suing Doug Behan, the manager of the team, personally. And I'm sure if they walked in the room, maybe there's no animosity, but it's something that, that had to be done. I don't know how it got worked out, and Lou has managed to have a good business to survive. But again, I have to mention that because I think let's just look at all the facts this is a part of Corvette racing history, but I don't know that you're going to find it at the museum. And maybe you have to find it with us, and maybe people don't care. I just wanted to mention it. Next, <laughs> this is kind of funny. My friend Jim Gessner, who, again, is, he knows straight axle and stingrays more than anybody I know on the planet. He called me in June. It was a hot day. It was in 2006. And he asked if I might like to look at his records for C1 and C2, straight axle and Stingray race cars. He knew I had one. I was involved. I said, hey, sure. What do you got? Jim emailed me a bunch of Excel pages. They literally blew up my inbox. They were just jammed with stuff. Some were short descriptions. Some were long. I said, wow. I had to take them to a commercial printer, which I did. It turned out 
There were 66 pages, and I brought them home, and I said, how am I going to make sense of this? And I wound up sitting in the same place where I am now today in my office talking to you. They took up my whole floor, and so I have them laid out in rows and columns, and I'm saying, wow. I'm down on my hands and knees, and they were so out of joint. I asked myself, I didn't want to insult Jim, I said, how could we expect anyone to make sense of this stuff, let alone what are they good for? I kind of let it cool off a little bit, and I got Jim on the phone, and I said, maybe it would be a good idea we get on the phone with our friends at the museum. So we got him on the phone. Their response was, quote, unquote, well, we have a summer intern. He might be able to help in some way if he can get to it. And, oh, by the way, we would need to own all this stuff. End quote. And Jim and I were quiet, we were respectful, but after we said, I think this is a showstopper. Having some business training and knowing that maybe you get lucky, something will go on, and worse, somebody might sue you if you start putting up records about Corvette race cars. I actually spent money to set up a business, and I recruited a young man who was really an up-and-coming guy. He was doing some research work at one of the universities here in New York City, and he still moonlights for us today. His career has taken off, but he's really been a great help. It was with him that we created this website, and we built this database. This was 2007. I felt that the early Corvettes are just part of the story. Some of you may have known about Wayne Elwood. I knew about Wayne. Wayne is a publisher of something called Shark Quarterly. He probably knows more about C3 Corvettes and Greenwood in particular than anybody I know. And then he said, oh, this sounds interesting. It's not going to cost me any money. So he agreed to help. Again, I don't review all these records. There's too many of them, but I am looking at a ton of them now as we've gone to this museum software. And the amount of information in there between Jim and Wayne, I can't believe it. I mean, they have stories of cars being found. You know, this one's from Oregon and this one came from and all the people who are involved. So I said, wow, this is pretty interesting. So we're getting started. And the banking crisis comes along in 2008. My career in real estate investment banking, it went into limbo, and then I saw it, oh, wow, where is this going? So I began turning my Rolodex from real estate contacts to racing contacts. <laughs> and <laughs> I was regretful at the time. Today, I'm thankful. That was a good thing. And it took us to get out from the shadows just doing something on your computer and putting stuff online. I was asked in 2010 by the folks at Watkins Glen, there's something called the International Motor Racing Research Center there. It's really neat. And they have an opening day every April where the track opens. And they have people come up and they have talks and you go out and they drive around the track. It's a lot of fun. So they said, hey, you seem to know some things about Corvettes. We're going to celebrate the Corvette. So I got to help organize an event there that I did free. But we had so much fun. And I got to know some great people. And one of the best was Michael Printup, who is the president of the track and still is today. He is the last thing from a straight-laced executive. I mean, you can talk with Michael about stories and everything. And we were also gearing up for this trip to Le Mans in 2010 with the Chip Miller family. So we had a whole lot of fun. And we kind of were able to put ourselves a little bit more on the roadmap. 
the trip to Le Mans was just an incredible experience. No one respects his father, Chip, more than Lance. But Lance has a completely different attitude about these things. So we arranged the, the car got sent over to Le Havre, and it got sent down to Le Mans. And it's sitting there, and we show up, and it was nice. They had it sitting in the museum. The following day, there was a big Corvette meet out at one of the suburbs or something, a big show. And everybody gathered there. And so how are we going to get there? I'm with a friend, and we have a rental car. But Lance says, we're going to drive there. And I think Kevin went with him. But here is a car that has no insurance. You hope the thing's not going to break down. And Lance gets in this thing. He has no idea where this place is even. And it was like maybe a 30-minute ride on public highways. You're driving this car, and it got there safe and found, and he brought it back to the Corvette Corral. But here's Lance driving this thing around, and Chip would be turning over his grave. He's just too cautious and much of a businessman to do this. But thank God the stars were shining on us all that weekend. The thing that impressed me the most is that there is a traditional parade lap before the 24 hours starts. And I think that's like at three or four o'clock on a Saturday and it ends at 24 hours later. So three o'clock comes around and John Fitch is sitting in this car. And I think Kevin's with him and the tires on that car, I think Kevin found them somewhere, but they're the original tires and they're 50 years old. Wow. And I've, told them, I said, you can get a set of tires that looks like this. Just put them on for the lap. You're sending a guy out who's 93 years old. He's going to drive this car around. He might be only going 60 or 70 miles an hour, but these tires dry rot. And I don't know, I've been in one of those things and the car starts to vibrate and the thing can explode. And it's not a nice thing. These are some of the memorable experiences I've had for that trip. I got to say, they've all been for the good. Jan, these stories have been fantastic. They really have. If someone wants to go to the website again, what is the website URL and how can they get a hold of you? Simply Google Corvette Race Cars, registry of CorvetteRaceCars.com. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you personally, can they do that? Absolutely. If you go on that website, you will find my contact information. You'll find my email address. You'll find my phone number. I am accessible 24-7. That sounds great. Jan, thank you so much. The stories have been absolutely phenomenal. I've really loved it. And if somebody's into Corvette racing, they've got to go to registryofcorvettecars.com. I would just like to add, if I could, Steve, that this span of experience has been really great and encouraging. But now I see, along with other people, age is creeping up. And some of these folks aren't around anymore. So I want to let everybody know, consider me as a person who has no time to lose. I'm getting after it. <laughs> That's great. Jan, thank you again. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.